Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Aaron Kamgisha. He's Professor of Cultural Studies at the University of West Indies, Cape Hill. His new book, Beyond Coloniality, is required reading for anyone interested in thinking through the legacies of colonialism and racism in the Caribbean. His engagement of the work of C.L.R. James and Sylvia Winter is impressive and inspiring. I so enjoyed talking to him. Here's our conversation. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure, a pleasure, a pleasure, Alejandra. Very good to be here. So um, I want to start actually with your first sentence because (laughs) it's really striking um, and it's quite bleak. So if I could just read it. The contemporary Caribbean, an area of experience that so many of its dispossessed citizens have given their lives and hearts to in the hope of social transformation is in a state of tragedy and crisis, destroyed and corrupted by a post-colonial malaise wedded to neocolonialism. So what were the circumstances under which you came to write that sentence? Well, um, I did want to have a very striking sentence to open the book. And um, I'm glad that it jumped at you, you know, as something to discuss and consider. Um, Because I really wanted to make clear the stakes of what I saw as our contemporary conjunction within the Caribbean. I wanted to make it clear to people that I thought that we inhabited a neocolonial state and what it actually meant to inhabit a neocolonial condition like this uh, 50 years after the coming of flag independence in the um, to the Anglophone Caribbean. So that was one of the reasons why I decided to actually write a sentence like that, a sentence in which it would be very clear to readers, or at least hopefully it would be very clear to readers, what it meant to have such an epic betrayal of the promise of independence and the promise of anti-colonialism two generations after independence. So before we dive into those arguments, um, can you talk a little bit about how you arrived at this point intellectually? Your work on Caribbean political and philosophical thought has been really important. uh, And it seems that this book is maybe part of a larger project. Well, certainly, yes. Um, So (laughs) without beginning at the very beginning, um, I I was born in Tanzania, but I moved to Barbados when I was very young as a baby. Uh, But the story of this book really begins 20 years ago when I was doing my master's in political science at the University of West Indies Capital Campus in Barbados. So during that time, I had the very good fortune to actually spend an exchange year 
um, at University of California, Berkeley as an exchange student in the African Diaspora Studies program. And at that time, and uh, this is like academic year 1999-2000, Berkeley was one of only four PhDs in programs in African American studies in the U.S., at that time, it was basically Harvard, Temple, Amherst, and Berkeley. Now there are somewhere like a dozen or so. And there were a number of really formidable scholars there at um, Berkeley at that time, uh, people who studied the African diaspora experience with a great deal of um, skill and meaning. Um, so persons like Barbara Christian, Percy Hinson, June Jordan, Saidia Hartman, and but also very fortuitously towards the end of that year, I had a couple of amazing conversations with Sylvia Winter, who people kept putting me towards. They kept saying to me, oh, as soon as they heard my project and the kind of work I was trying to do, oh, you've got to talk to Sylvia Winter, you've got to talk to Sylvia Winter. So sooner or later, um, the interview was set up and I went and I spoke to Sylvia um, in May 2000 towards the end of my year at Berkeley. And we talked straight for about four and a half hours. And at the end of that, I knew exactly what I um, had to do, what I was going to do onwards from there. Um, Sylvia at that point was emeritus from Stanford and still living on campus um, at Stanford in Palo Alto in her house there. Um, so that year was signally important to me. Um, it was a year that really exposed me to the idea that Africana studies and Africana thought could be a distinct disciplinary enterprise from other academic areas of inquiry. Um, and it could be an incredibly compelling area of study. And from this, there was no turning back. At the end of that year, I knew exactly what I wanted to do and what I did want to devote the rest of my life to doing. So I returned back home. I completed my master's on quite a different subject from um, what my book began. I then um, journeyed onwards to York University in Toronto to do my PhD in social and political thought. And SPT, as it's called there, um, is a leading program in the study of ideas in Canada, for American listeners, it's kind of Canada's equivalent of History of Consciousness at Santa Cruz, you know, which um, for many years is the most celebrated program in the history of ideas in the U.S. And there were many wonderful scholars of the Caribbean and African experience also in Toronto, uh, both between York University and University of Toronto. And many of them I worked with, shared ideas with. And during that time, most of what became beyond coloniality was mapped out. Um, it has its kernel in my PhD dissertation, which I defended in 2006. So following the completion of that um, and completion of my doctorate, I spent a postdoc year in African-American studies at Northwestern. Again, a, a very productive year in an incredible African-American studies program. I should say that um, in many ways, my best intellectual experiences have come within African-American studies departments, you know, at Berkeley, at Northwestern and um, visiting other places. And um, on my return then to University of West Indies Cable Campus, where I am now, returning home, I was located and I'm still located within the Cultural Studies Department and I've been here for 12 years. So um, that is like the wider um, set of back and forth that created the project. But more specifically, at the beginning of the last decade in 2010, I started to commence a consideration of intellectual history of the Caribbean region, the political thought of the region, the cultural thought of the region. And that resulted in four volumes of work, um, two volumes on Caribbean political thought, and then two volumes on Caribbean cultural thought and Caribbean popular culture, which I did with my um, good friend and scholar, the scholar Yannick Hume. 
And I had also was working on a number of special issues of journals and subjects of great interest to me. So um, I edited a special issue of a CLR James Journal on Black Canadian Thought, one on race and class, um, Caribbean trajectories 200 years onwards. Um, and also I was a multi-editor, one of the many editors on a volume of the Rutledge Reader in African-American Rhetoric. But most of all of this really was in preparation for Beyond Coloniality. So I always had the book in mind. I was writing part of the books um, while involved in all of these different editorial and writing projects, which I was asked to do from time to time. So I finally said no to all offers I got and uh, said the book had to be finished, which was then completed and published in early 2019. So... what I wanted to do at Beyond Coloniality, I wanted to do many different things. Um, but one of the things I principally wanted to do was show the radical Caribbean intellectual tradition at its finest, especially from a group of thinkers who were vanishing from this, this sphere of existence almost every year um, in that second decade of the 21st century. And... Um, I wanted to show that this was a particularly insightful body of thought that had global resonance and appeal. And uh, I wanted to simultaneously do a project which allowed me to do two things. One, a particular type of criticism um, of Caribbean neocolonial citizenship, while at the same time thinking through some major Caribbean thinkers and their contribution to a dismantling of this coloniality of citizenship, as I would come to call it, in the contemporary Anglophone Caribbean. So the first part of the book, I had a question about why C.L.R. James and why Sylvia Winter, but I think you answered that pretty beautifully. (laughs) Um, But so the first part of the book is really um, a critique of the contemporary Anglophone Caribbean, and you do um, um, specify that it is Anglophone that you're addressing, which is interesting. Maybe we can talk about that as well. But you you come down quite hard on what you call Creole nationalism and the middle classes. So can you talk a little bit about what you think went wrong in the early years of independence? Well, um, I think that the finest critics of the Caribbean experience um, in many ways, and I'm thinking here particularly of CLR James and Franz Fanon to take two, who are, in, to my mind, the finest political thinkers of the Caribbean's 20th century. If you look at their work at the moment of independence, they're very much aware of the fact that neocolonialism was probably going to be the lot of these newly independent countries. This is the reason why Fanon will title chapter three of The Wretched of the Earth, The Pitfalls of National Consciousness. This is the reason why C.L.R. James would write his classic essay, The the West Indian Middle Classes. And on one level, this is not really surprising because um, it's a particular kind of consolidation of bourgeois rule, which um, over the planet, which extends naturally to many third world countries. Um, But the thing I think which is um, very interesting and very important is that flag independence, as many would call it, certainly did not result in, by any means, 
in the coming of self-determination to these countries. The Caribbean as a region is and has and at the time of independence was profoundly dominated by transnational capital. It was also the site of Europe's oldest colonizing mission within the New World. And um, as a result of that, the small size, the fact that Britain, to speak of the Anglophone case, um, was very reluctant to grant full independence and autonomy to any countries um, which were not headed by neocolonial elites and particular figures who they um, saw would continue to do their bidding and certainly were not interested in a socialist critique of the state. Uh, Because of all of these things, there was really no um, reason to believe that Caribbean independence would not be neocolonial and um, neocolonial citizenship would not be what would be proffered to the Caribbean people um, after independence and becoming a self-government in the 1960s. So you specify a few things that are that you see as kind of problematic legacies of that neocolonial mm-hmm. independence. Among them, and I want to talk about race in just a minute, but you also talk about gender and tourism and the idea of political versus cultural citizenship. Can you say more about why those were important to you? Well, um, tourism, because tourism has had such a seismic impact on Caribbean economies in the last four decades. When you look at the Anglophone Caribbean particularly, um, most of these countries, in most of these countries, tourism has become the new plantation. And, but I wasn't really so much concerned with that old critique of tourism and the tourist tourist industry, um, even though it st- stands on some level behind the critique that I make. So um, the new f- uh, scholars in the New World Group uh, onwards have been making that particular critique of tourism. What I was particularly interested in is how tourism configures citizenship and uh, becomes a means by which neocolonial citizenship becomes further and further consolidated within the Caribbean. And the incredible studies that have been done of the Bahamas and Jamaica and Barbados particularly, the more entrenched the tourist, tourist economy, the greater a particular form of neocolonial citizenship repeats itself, to use Benitez Rojo's phrase, like a repeating island up and down the Caribbean in these particular spaces. So um, given the preponderance of tourism and the seismic importance of it within the economies, tourism became important to speak about for a moment in Chapter 2 as a vignette. Um, The question of gender and sexuality and citizenship also became key, partly because some of the most important work that has been done in dismantling Caribbean or showing the ruses of Caribbean neocolonial citizenship has come by Carib- from Caribbean feminists. And of course, one of the greatest struggles in the Caribbean at the moment now for a change of the very terms in, of neocolonial citizenship comes from the LGBTQ um, movement. 
So um, that became a moment that I also wanted to speak about um, in a couple of vignettes towards the end of chapter two by itself, even though my concern with it, of course, comes back and forth throughout the manuscript. Yeah, and then there's the question of race, which is, you know, threads throughout the book, but you you um, you draw in one chapter on quotes from Walter Rodney and then also from James Baldwin. And, a, and Rodney quote um, you use says that um, the Caribbean invented racialism. And then the James Baldwin quote that you use says that only black people can destroy the legend of color because they are the only ones who do not need it. Um, can you talk more about how that is important to understanding neocolonial citizenship? True, certainly. And um, the moment from Rodney that I take up, um, I believe the quote starts with Rodney saying about the Caribbean being the laboratory of racism. And yes. it's an incredibly acute way of thinking about the Caribbean experience. I mean, I live in Barbados, and Barbados is, as um, Hilary Beckles points out in a recent book, the first black slave um, society in the New World, in which a vast majority of people within the country are enslaved black people. So um, countries like Barbados play a very important role in the creation and the consolidation of ideas of anti-blackness during the colonial period, and particularly in the 17th century. So um, I took Rodney's quote um, and his analysis there and twinned it with Baldwin's comment um, about Black people and the legend of colour and the abolishment of that um, as a way of using two very arresting quotes at the beginning of my um, chapter three. And I did that because... I wanted to speak about the fact that within Caribbean contemporary social and political criticism, there is a fair amount of theorizing around race, but not a lot of theorization about actually existing racism and how racism actually works and consolidates itself within the Caribbean. So um, as I believe I pointed out at one point, in the 1980s, we had a situation in which there were many studies being done by Caribbean scholars that gave us an idea of who actually owns the Caribbean um, and who owns these societies. I believe that Stan Reed did this famous study of the elites in Jamaica, in which he showed there was about a half dozen um, mainly um, white families in control Jamaica. Uh, through things like interlocking directorships, ownership patterns, kinship ties, all of those kinds of things. We don't have really a sense now of who actually owns the Anglophone Caribbean. And that's because that work is not being done in the same manner. So we have a far more attenuated understanding now of the political economy of contemporary Caribbean racism. While simultaneously... With the cultural studies movement, there is a lot of theorizing and discussion of race, um, but not a great deal of discussion of racism. So that was one of the reasons why I targeted um, 
the discussion of queerization and the ways in which queerization has come to work in the Anglophone Caribbean as a particular, the Caribbean theory of multiculturalism. But uh, multiculturalism, of course, is heavily debated and under serious attack by the left um, and by um, a radical scholarship within North America and Europe. I wasn't seeing that same kind of critique within the Caribbean um, intellectual circles. And I decided that I wanted to mount a particularly polemical, but I thought important critique of it. Yeah, I think that um, it seems to me that that is a really important critique that you make. But then I was thinking about this idea of creolization and how um, really kind of prevalent it is in in so many sort of discursive realms, right? From education to politics, um, it's going to be really hard to dislodge, I think. And and some people argue that it's a kind of hopeful term, right? So, what do you have to say to to those? <laughs> to those people. Indeed, yeah. And um, no, I think that creolization is um, quite arguably Caribbean cultural theory's most important term or proffering or creation towards global cultural theory, you know, and contribution towards global cultural theory. What I really wanted people to understand is that there is another side of these questions or these ways of using creolization, which seems to have been forgotten. Um, so I'm not trying to dismantle or get rid of the use of creolization, even if I could, I can't. But I wanted to make it very clear that creole and creolization, we understand um, that terms like creole and creolization mean very different things. Um, in uh, quite simply different parts of the Caribbean. It's fascinating when you go from island to island and you will see who or what Creole represents. In some spaces, it actually means white people. In some places, it means black people. In some places, it means mixed people. There's a fascinating, and all of this has to do with specific histories of the place. So Creolization is fascinating in that way. And certainly, it's used to consider a multicultural vision um, and a sympathy for intercultural dialogue by persons who completely reject neocolonialism. Um, that's certainly there in some of the scholarship. But it's also used by conservative forces who actually wish to deny um, particularly um, the African diaspora experience in the Caribbean, um, but also um, wish to use it as a way of privileging particular kinds of mixed-race norms and mixed-race understandings within the Caribbean. And I thought that working through what I saw as some of the most sophisticated work on creolization, showing some of its ambivalences and complexities, and uh, highlighting also the work of people who have done, I think, some of the best um, critiques of a subject. I'm particularly thinking here of the work of Percy Hinson and the work of Aisha Khan, whose work is tremendous 
on showing um, the difficulties associated with creolization. Um, Hinson, from the perspective of a political sociologist, Aisha Khan, from the perspective of anthrop- anthropologists. Um, but um, while their work is known, um, it's fascinating that the beat still goes on in terms of certain uses and certain um, abuses of the term of, of the term creolization. So um, that's what I meant. It was uh, I've already seen from some responses that has found myself that this is the most um, controversial part of the book, <laughs> but. Um, I um, uh, thought it was an important um, critique to make. And um, really the most important thing I'm trying to do there is not really debate whether creolization as a term should be used at all. It's going to continue to be used. I don't necessarily have a problem with it being used. But really to say um, we are producing a tremendous body of work that is using the term creolization and thinking through this idea of creolization, while the work on theorizing contemporary existing racism and how it perpetuates itself in the Caribbean is getting short shrift or has be- is becoming practically non-existent. So once you set that up, which you do in the first part of the book, um, quite compellingly, I think, it's time to move on to James and Winter. And I was really interested to see that there was there had been a small dialogue between the two writers. Um, I don't think that many people talk about that. Mm, yes. And there certainly was because... Um, James, remember, spent a significant amount of time um, in the United States in the 70s, particularly lecturing at a number of universities. And Winter, of course, met him. And they, um, I believe she told me that um, they brought him to Stanford at one time. So certainly James was somebody who she met on, I would dare say, more than one occasion. Um, James never had the opportunity to write um, at length on Winter's work. But as I quote and show, the things that he said about Winter, I mean, he said that she was the greatest mind the Caribbean had ever produced. Um, that was the kind of esteem that she had him in. So um, to speak more about James and Winter, and actually to answer the question you proffered about why James and Winter um, at the beginning. I think you were a little too generous to me when you said that you thought that I'd answered it. Um, I certainly don't think I have for the viewers, at least, for the listeners at least. Um, in choosing James and Winter, um, I should go back a bit and explain a bit more about what the book was trying to do too. Um, the book is trying to effect a challenging alliance between a critique of a social and political moment, which is very complex in its territorial specificity. Um, I'm speaking about the Anglophone Caribbean, but even the Anglophone Caribbean is very diverse. And it's difficult sometimes to generalize and to talk about the Anglophone Caribbean as one, given the differences between a Jamaica and a St. Lucia and a Trinidad. Um, And I wrestled with that for a while. But Um, The fact that colonialism reduced these territories to a governable singularity and the fact that the Anglophone Caribbean gets independence around the same period of time means that it's possible to speak in this particular work about the Anglophone Caribbean together in a way that it wouldn't have simply been possible to have spoken about the larger Caribbean. 
um, uh, altogether. In other words, um, even if we think about what we might call post-colonial politics in the Caribbean. Um, how do you periodize that, considering the different moments in which a Haiti or a Cuba or Dominican Republic or Puerto Rico um, get independence, however contested or neocolonial that independence might be? Um, so um, I'm trying to talk about the Anglophone Caribbean together, but and I'm trying to talk about this social and political moment in which um, we have become complacent and completely content with neocolonial forms of power and domination. But I'm also trying to use radical Caribbean social and political thought as a means to comprehend the coloniality of our present and also to imagine a future to uh, embattled um, sense of being in the world beyond coloniality. So um, that was always going to be the project. And uh, you would have noticed how I twin a number of thinkers um, and I read them in concert. And I read them in concert partly because I found it interesting to read thinkers who one would not necessarily usually associate together to show commonalities and divergences within their work, but how they can be utilized together towards thinking about a particular moment question or conundrum within the Caribbean experience. So um, I read Percy Hinson with Jackie Alexander. I read CLR James with Claudia Jones. I read George Lamming with Audre Lorde. Um, but the grand uh, two that I read together, uh, which the book is all about, is CLR James and Sylvia Winter. And I chose James and Winter because they had both written so much. And I was drawn so much to the range of contributions that they had made to thinking about almost everything that I realized that I could do a work in which I could touch on so many aspects of the Caribbean experience um, through their work. In other words, they have something to say about practically everything. Through them, you can think about race. Through them, you can think about diaspora. Even though there are other people to turn to on race and diaspora, we may um, quite um, possibly claim are better than them. They have something to say about so much. But then also, there was a new contribution I felt that I can make to the writing um, or to the existing scholarship on their work. And when I came to actually write the chapters on James and Winter, um, of course, I was struck by the fascinating difference in the existing scholarship in the two, because James had been the subject of so many books and edited collections. Well, Winter, when I began this work, with very few. I mean, um, I recall doing work on Winter in 2000, 2001, and there were so uh, few people. Um, it seemed just really a handful of us who were writing on her. Um, and now it's tremendous the way that uh, Winter scholarship has emerged in the last 10 years. Um, but, um, but for both of them, though, there was a significant um, area in which I could write on. And for James, it was thinking about James after he returned to the Caribbean in the late 50s and uh, how James was imagining the Caribbean at the cusp of independence. Um, and I was really concerned with the story of what he did, um, his battles with Eric Williams, uh, first prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago, um, 
the way that he slips away from Trinidad a few weeks before independence is celebrated. All of that is relatively well known and is part of the James record in the biographies. The interest I had, though, was this thought at the time and what it actually said about the Caribbean at the cusp of independence. Uh, So the ways in which James is reading traditional modernity, the way in which he's critiquing the post-colonial elites, the kind of vision of the future that he has, all of those kinds of things. So um, that was part of James. But then I also had this interest in this category that James announced in uh, a 1980-81 interview. So um, towards the end of his life, James did many interviews. And in one of them, he was asked, what was your greatest contribution? What is your greatest greatest contribution being? And James said, and I quote, my contributions have been, number one, to clarify and extend the heritage of Marx and Lenin, and number two, to explain and expand the idea of what constitutes new society. And I felt myself very fascinated by that latter part. Um, this idea of explaining and expanding uh, what constitutes a new society. And then in reading James's work, I realized that he's talking about this new society over and over in the 1950s and onwards for the rest of his life. And then I realized that this new society was very concerned and very connected to the question of women and uh, the domination of women, uh, questions of gender relations within uh, Western societies. And so I ended up tracking that, not expecting to find much, but then ended up finding quite a lot. And it ended up, ends up becoming about the last half or so of the chapter that I did on James. Now, Winter similarly, um, her canon and the amount of work she's published is formidable in its range and complexity. Um, but what I wanted to do in this chapter, so what I wanted to do in this chapter for a while escaped me. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do and what my take was going to be. I was writing on her earlier Caribbean essays, and that was finding its way into earlier parts of the books. Um, but I hadn't quite got what I was going to do for this essay. But then um, at the beginning of that decade, about 2010, 2011, I encountered Black Metamorphosis. Um, and Black Metamorphosis became so crucial because I realized that it was this link between her Caribbean-centered critical essays um, of the 60s into the 70s and then her work on the human from about 1984 onwards. And I think a lot of European and North American scholarship more, more, more knows the 1984 onwards part rather than the earlier part. But... I found um, both sides of Winter compelling, and I found Black Metamorphosis, which I've said in print, um, I believe is the greatest and published nonfiction work by a Caribbean intellectual. Um, I thought that the reading I could do in Black Metamorphosis would um, allow me to show the Winter as a theorist of the condition of Blacks and of the condemned of the earth in the new world and beyond. Because in that text, she shows herself indisputably to be such a major theorist of uh, coloniality and global colonialism um, in the world. It's a text, of course, that took a decade to write, was never published 
um, before she gave it a rest um, in the early 80s because she had other work that she wished to do. But um, it's a remarkable text, and um, it really shows a particular brilliant insight into um, the question of colonial citizenship, the question of the treatment of Blacks within um, the Western Hemisphere, and of the solidarity that is needed to effect a move beyond coloniality. So just to jump in here, that that manuscript that you refer to is a 935-page unpublished manuscript, right? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> that text that you write about. Yeah. And that, like, the, uh, just um, the kind of boldness of that of that move to write about that as the main um, component and to really read it so carefully and so deeply um, was quite remarkable. You call it and you 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 call it what you, as you you quoted yourself, but then I have another quote. Um, you say it's one of the most compelling sustained renditions of the Black experience of New World coloniality in African diasporic letters. And even saying this is not quite enough. When you read it, you will know. There's no hyperbole there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still unpublished, right? Um, yes, I believe that it's going to be published in the next year or two, and that will certainly be an ah. event of the of the first order. But um, yes, but um, it is at the moment still unpublished. Ah, okay, okay. So we we may yet get to read it. Okay. Um, but but I want I want to go back to um, to James for just a minute. And of course, when when um, I saw that you were writing about James, I thought of David Scott, as many other people will um, when they open this book. Um, but you are you are in distinct contrast to what David Scott is trying to do. Um, and one of the things that you write about how you're thinking about James is that you're really paying attention to what he called the new forms of existence that are a gift of the Caribbean to the world. And I, I just loved that phrase. And I wonder if you can say a little bit more about it. Oh, certainly. Um, and I think that, first of all, to speak about um, James and uh, to think about what James is trying to do. Um, when I read the work of the late 50s and the early 60s, on James. I had a different take than David did in his fascinating um, Conscripts of Modernity, um, a book which I got a great deal from because that kind of project of taking one great book, The Black Jacobins, and using it as a way of reading and pulling forth and thinking about the present through it is something, um, it's a project that, of course, I have a great deal of sympathy and interest in. So, um, but my reading was somewhat different because I'm looking at James at that time and I'm seeing someone who is very aware that the future may be neocolonial at that moment at the cusp of independence. But he also has this cautious tale of hope, of excitement at the possibilities of the new nation. And I think that's what you see right up and down in Beyond a Boundary, which is really a book that is so remarkable. Um, uh, I mean, Hazel Carby, in a lovely essay she had from 1987, stated, called it then one of the most outstanding works of cultural studies ever produced. But it really is. Um, it is a tremendous book in terms of what it actually offers, 
But James has this idea that Caribbean people are going to bring something new to the world and they're going to bring something, they are part of a new society and they're going to bring something new to the world. And um, even though um, James's uh, particular um, sense of the Caribbean would be maybe quite um, very legitimately insufferable to um, many, I believe that there is a particular lesson and something of great interest that he is trying to get at in terms of that question of tradition modernity. Um, he's so worried that the Caribbean on one level has what he thinks of as shallow roots. And of course, he sees the Caribbean as having shallow roots, um, unlike countries which have centuries of tradition. But one of the reasons that he sees that or he thinks that is because he can't quite conceive of the African diaspora presence in the region. And that's partly the time in which he wrote, how he came up, the scholarship that had been done, all of these things. He's too far away from it to actually be able to see it. But what he does see and what he is able to speak about, um, that emerging popular tradition, his writings on Sparrow, his writings on Garfield Sobers, his understanding of the cricketers ushering in something new, um, the idea that traditional modernity are going to somehow be elegantly juggled in the Caribbean to create a society which is going to fill the world with wonder. Um, so James, for example, um, was in love with ancient Greece, you know, um, in a way, of course, which um, we would find quite Eurocentric today. But it wasn't just for James um, marveling at what he saw as the glory of ancient Greek democracy or civilization. It was more that there were these small societies which thousands of years later were still being thought about, being debated about, being considered as something um, of great importance, um, um, let me see, for the world, and something that people could still learn from. So um, that's, I guess, what I would say there. Um, I think that both James and Winter are very interested in the idea that new forms of life have actually emerged and created in the Caribbean, been created in the Caribbean, and um, they um, wish to think about the Caribbean as a place that um, will continue to proffer something um, that can enchant a new vision of humanity. And you bring it really to the present. Um, interestingly, you you point out, um, and perhaps the the current state that the current condition that the world is in right now um, just sort of reinforces that. The last thirty years, even after national or flag nationalism, as you call it, of you know terror, growing inequality, a growing carceral state, environmental destruction. And you, you argue that both Sylvia Winter and James have something to tell us now. Also, right? yes. Um, yes, I mean, um, I think that they both have a great deal to tell us now. I think that um, James's work on um, state capitalism and world revolution in uh, 1950 
the kind of work that he did in the Johnson for Johnson Force tendency has a great deal to tell us about a state like China, okay? Um, but also some of the dominant forms of uh, political economic hegemony um, and that kind of order that we see emerging within um, the world today. And that's just giving another one of James's many contributions. Um, so I certainly think that um, James has much to show us there. Um, James has much to continue to teach us about questions of imperialism, how imperialism consolidated itself and how it continues to perpetuate itself within the Caribbean. Um, his Marxist work, I hope, will continue to, um, let me see, be seen as important work for persons to read, but also the work that he does in Beyond the Boundary and the ways in which he's able to think about the question of culture and think about the question of colonialism and place them together and not to use one of his own phrase, uh, phrases, fake the game in a particular way is particularly compelling. Um, however, one of the greatest things that James um, really gives us, if we want to move truly beyond coloniality, comes in a simple phrase that he uses to describe a cricketer like Larry Constantine. He talks about how Larry Constantine, one of the first great West Indian cricketers who played in the leagues a lot in England, that he preferred playing in the league rather than first-class cricket because there he could give his powers full play. And there is something about that because James, throughout that book, Beyond the Boundary, has a particular theory of Caribbean freedom that he's constantly articulating. The idea that the ends of a democracy are a better existence. The idea of living in a society where you can give your powers, whatever your specific powers are, full play, in which human beings can actually be fully self-actualized. Or as Winter put it in one of her comments on James, and she was quoting here Jose Marti, um, she talked about living in a world where um, you do not live as wolves among wolves, but men among men which would obviously be a non-capitalist order. So um, Winter, um, to switch to her, the work that Winter has done and the way in which she's been able to bring together so many different movements and speak about the question of the human after Western man and to give all of these highly important movements their place in space, but suggests that they're all part of a larger question of uh, the reproduction of Western capitalist man and what that is going to mean for the survivability of our planet. Um, it points Winter to being a major theorist of the human condition. And uh, to twin both together, which I did at the end of chapter five, you know, when I did a reading of Winter on James um, and the three essays that she does on James, there was an interview that Winter did in which she was asked, um, what did she think was James's great contribution? Earlier on, I've spoken about what James said himself was his greatest contribution. And Winter said, 
it was his tremendous revindication of what it means to be human, which, by the way, is always put down in a bourgeois notion of man. And I thought, wow, that is it, you know, more than anything else. But it applies so much to winter too. She's saying that of James, but it applies so much to, um, to winter too. And this is also the reason why they're such great theorists of the popular, because they understood the, that question of the revindication of what it means to be human. But but that's the, the second part, as Winter says, which of course is always put down in a bourgeois notion of man. So she, and in some ways, she takes a much more radical and much more historical turn, right? Because she wants to go all the way back to the beginning of, of colonialism, um, to the to the 15th century, and and really rethink everything in terms of what happened in that encounter and how race was produced at that moment and, and almost everything that comes after. Oh, certainly, yes. And they also write at different times and um, they write um, with a different set of influences and interests, you know? I mean, um, I write at one point about this strange and fascinating commonality, but very big difference between James's American Civilization book and Winter's Black Metamorphosis. So James writes American Civilization in 1950. Um, Winter writes Black Metamorphosis in the 1970s. Both books are these two tremendous attempts by Caribbean intellectuals to engage with what it means to be in the United States. Um, Because so much, of course, of Black Metamorphosis is thinking through the question of um, the African experience in America, even though it's broader than that and speaks about the Americas, but um, the African experience in the United States. And um, it's fascinating. There are these two projects, these two books. They both languish for about 30 to 40 years before they're published. Um, I mean, Winter, I would think, um, being published soon, Black Metamorphosis being published soon. James's American Civilization wasn't published until the early 1990s, I believe. Um, and they were both unfinished texts. And they're, you know, um, texts that have um, their own questions. There are many questions around them. But James is writing, and what Winter is writing, there's like a chasm between them. And the chasm, of course, is partly that James is writing before even Brown versus Board of Education. He's writing before the Civil Rights Movement. Winter is writing when there is this creative upsurge and this uprising and this creation of Black Studies departments in the United States, which is one of the reasons why she actually decided to leave and um, leave um, University of West Indies Mona in Jamaica to come to the United States um, because of the fervent of intellectual excitement that was happening, happening there between those things. So... Um, we must always think about the different, um, the difference in age, the difference in moments, the difference in experiences that would have produced these different books and these different kinds of texts and these different kinds of engagements uh, between uh, Winter and James. Um, but on the question of the way that Winter goes back, 
Winter always also goes back to Las Casas, partly because she's very aware of that history, because um, Las Casas's conversion experience comes while he is in Jamaica, and she studied it, and she thought about it, and she did her master's in Spain, and all this kind of thing. Um, but she also goes back because... Winter wants us to understand that what becomes post-colonial studies in the 1980s and 1990s academy in the United States is taking up the story for her a little too late. It's taking up the story and producing some fascinating and very important studies, but it's thinking more about the high point of imperialism in the 19th century. And she wants to make sure that we're still thinking about those inaugural and early moments, the battle at Valladolid between Sepulveda and Las Casas over the status of native people within the New World, which is an um, incredible story um, for political theory. It should be studied in every political philosophy course in the Western Hemisphere, you know, in the, in the West, actually, uh, because it's the first great um, political theory kind of um, story that happens, um, um, say, after the colonization. Um, but she also wants us to um, think very centrally about the question of slavery. You see? So um, that's one of the reasons why Winter goes back to that moment and uh, brings us back forward then when she's thinking about that question of the invention of Western man and talking about man one versus man two, because she wants us to see the longevity of this European project and how the West becomes created, as Glissant would say, as a project, not a place. Yeah, so um, as we sort of start to reach the end of our time here, I have I have a, just a changed gears just a little bit. It, and this is a question about the writing and the writing process more than anything else, I guess. Sure. Um, the, the admiration um, is justified, right, for these two writers. And we all, we all sort of look to them for, for, for so much wisdom that they offer. But, but you don't shy away also from making some critiques. And I'm wondering how you thought about that and how do you strike that balance between kind of being clear-sighted about what they do and what they what the limitations are, but also still acknowledging their contribution. How do you how do you write that, and how how do you strike that balance in the writing? Well, I think that um, you show your greatest appreciation by a sustained and rigorous and a thoughtful engagement with the writers. I don't think that um, any of them would have wanted persons to sing their praises. Uh, They would have wanted an engagement that hopefully takes their ideas further. Because you can show um, how a great thinker's ideas live within the world, partly um, by critique of them, okay, rather than simply by praise of them. Um, And I think that in... uh, showing in a very historically situated way why this would be so, why this particular um, understanding would have been proffered at that time, um, shows um, a great deal more about 
how we up the practice of criticism than simply praise. So the end of the book um, goes back to the title, actually, Beyond, Beyond Coloniality. Um, and so what can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by beyond and where that takes us? Well, um, I think that the beyond in beyond coloniality came partly from the fact that the two theorists that I discussed most TLR James and Sylvia Winter, it's a very important um, phrase and moment for them. There are many essays that Winter has, for example, that begin with the idea of the beyond. Um, and the beyond is a gesturing to we appreciate, we think with, and we move beyond, uh, we move to another stage. So I'll give you a, a, a different example of how I think about a lot of these things, and it actually relates to your just concluded question about criticism. Um, there is a lovely interview with Stuart Hall that David Scott did in the very first issue with Small Axe. And at one point, Scott is pushing Hall a bit on the question of Garvey. Um, now, this interview is in 1996 or so, and um, Garvey, of course, is the greatest known Jamaican political figure. And Hall, of course, is one of the inventors of cultural studies. And the difference between Garvey's thought and Hall's thought on many questions would be too obvious to um, <laughs> detain ourselves with. And um, so he asked Paul, what do you think of Garvey's thing? And Hall responds by saying, I honor the moment I'm attempting to surpass. And I thought that that phrase was one of the best ways I've heard of thinking about that particular question. And I think it also plays into the question of the beyond. Um, I discuss at some length James's great book, Beyond the Boundary. And um, of course, that's a George Laving title. <laughs> um, the working title was Who Only Cricket Know? And the publishers actually wanted to call it Cricket Crusaders. <laughs> but fortunately, <laughs> Laving intervened that it, began, it became Beyond the Boundary. Um, uh, and um, and of course, then um, Winter, as I said, in many of her essays, uses the idea of the beyond. Um, but the beyond becomes the hope, the expectation, the urge, the urgency, the question of taking what we know and moving to another mode or another moment of existence. It's not suggesting that either James or Winter, with their contradictions, but with their also amazing life work, have moved beyond coloniality. It's certainly not a suggestion that the Caribbean neocolonial state um, has moved beyond coloniality. I think um, all readers, unless um, they very much misread it, would, would have got that. But it's the insistence of what we have to do and where we need to go. Thank you. I think um, I think we can end there on that note. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Yes, no, it was an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much.